0: How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the Internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create The Wrap Dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history
0: matters. Welcome everyone to our discussion today with two distinguished individuals, One is General David Petraeus, the former four-star general, one of the best-known military leaders of the uh, post-Vietnam War era in our country, and Lord Andrew Roberts, one of the best-known authors of British and American history in recent years. They have come together to write a book called Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Uh, So it's an epic book that I highly recommend. General Petraeus and Lord Roberts, thank you for being here today.
1: Good to be with you, David.
0: Thanks very much for having us on the show. So uh, let me congratulate you, uh, Andrew, on becoming a Lord. Since I talked to you last, uh, congratulations. I don't know if that means that you have to be in the House of Lords all the time to vote on things, but congratulations. That's very kind of you. It does.
2: Uh, it does mean that I'm there quite a lot. In fact, I was there in a debate until eleven o'clock last night. It's uh,
0: fascinating. Okay. Well, congratulations. And David Petraeus, uh, congratulations on your success since you left uh, the military. uh, You are in the most important industry in the world, private equity, uh, as a a partner at KKR. And congratulations on all the things that you've achieved there. Thank you. So let me ask you, what is the main message that you wanted to convey about warfare since World War II?
1: Well, I think it's probably about warfare uh, throughout time, David, but it's really about the critical importance of strategic leadership. Uh, And we lay out an intellectual construct for strategic leadership in the introduction uh, that I actually used. I developed it when I was between the three and four star tours in Iraq. uh, And then I explicitly used it during the surge in Iraq at US Central Command uh, in Afghanistan, and then at the CIA as well. And there are four tasks that a strategic leader has to get right. And this is, by the way, the senior civilian and then the senior battlefield commander. The strategic leader has to get the big ideas right, has to understand the context, uh, all the various elements that obtain to a war, understand the nature of the war, and then craft the right strategy, then has to communicate the big ideas throughout the breadth and depth of the organization and to everyone who has a stake in the outcome of a particular conflict, Third task is to oversee the implementation of the big ideas. This is what we normally think of as leadership. It's the example, the energy, the inspiration. It's attracting great people, hanging on to them, allowing those not measuring up to move on to something else. It's the metrics that are used that have to be very rigorously defined and the information collected and deconflicted. And it's how the leader spends his or her time. That's crucial. The battle rhythm, as we called it, is very, very important because You drive the execution of a campaign plan, and then there's a critical fourth task, sometimes overlooked, which is where the leader has to sit down and determine how you've refined the big ideas to do it again and again and again. As the battlefield situation changes, the strategic context evolves, technologies, strategies, tactics, and all of the rest of that may change over time. Uh, And so those are the four tasks. And what we came to the conclusion uh, about in examining these various conflicts is that the quality of the strategic leadership is generally the most important component that determines whether a particular side prevails or does not.
0: Okay. Well, since World War II, how would you say warfare has changed the most? What are the two or three uh, biggest lessons uh, that we've learned since World War II about warfare? Lord Roberts? I
2: think um, a really important one is that the whole area of counterinsurgency has become a much more um, almost scientific thing. You can can learn from earlier experiences of counterinsurgency. It's something that David did in his 2006 manual. You can use history a a good deal looking at what happened in, say, uh, Malaya in the 1950s or Oman in the 1960s. And so the development of certain weapons like the AK-47, which is so ubiquitous um, across uh, Asia and Africa and elsewhere, um, makes us look at a alteration in uh In the kind of fighting, the anti-tank weaponry that's been advanced so enormously since the Second World War has altered the battlefield. And when we look at various uh, paradigm shifting wars, like the Yom Kippur War or the Ukraine War, we have a whole load of lessons that we've had to learn since 19. um 45 but i think another really important key thing is the domestic political situation which uh, everybody has to keep an eye on in a way that they simply didn't in 1940 um 1941 to 45 the domestic um uh, political situation tended to be under control that is not the case since 1945
1: david uh, also when you look at in recent decades the advances in unmanned systems and the way that they have really transformed uh, warfare and the rise of precision munitions uh, and the proliferation of surveillance and reconnaissance systems, uh, these have had a very significant effect uh, on combat. In fact, during the period that I was most heavily engaged, uh, again, in the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, the greater Middle East, these all evolved And now it enables us in many respects in certain wars to combat insurgents and extremists by advising, assisting and enabling uh, local partners. So we provide the drones, we provide the precision munitions, we provide the intelligence fusion, uh, we provide the advanced surveillance capabilities, the big data, all of these technical capabilities Uh, And we enable the host nation forces to fight that war. And this is an example when the al-Qaeda in Iraq evolved into the Islamic State. It was allowed to reconstitute after our combat forces left Iraq and the Iraqi security forces took their eye off it. And all of a sudden you have the first ever Islamist extremist caliphate. We went back in, but we went in with small numbers of forces and we were able to advise, assist and enable the Iraqi security forces, uh, again, with these various capabilities I've just highlighted. And they were the ones that actually did the fighting on the front lines while we helped them in a whole host of different ways. That's not always going to be possible. Clearly, there are going to be plenty of cases in which our forces have to engage directly. The the potential conflict that we are working hardest to deter, that would be anything between the US and China, let's say, or other major uh, armies. There we would obviously be very directly involved, but then we would be enabling our own capabilities with what are going to be increasingly unmanned systems and much, much greater numbers of them. And over time, these are not just going to be remotely piloted, as have been the predators and reapers in the past. Uh, They're going to increasingly be algorithmically driven or piloted, and the human in the loop will become the human on the loop, the individual who develops the software that guides the actions of a particular machine. Uh, and the other challenge, of course, is that an old adage that we used to use during the Cold War, but never really could operationalize, and that was that what can be seen can be hit, what can be hit can be killed, now very much is being operationalized. You see this even to a degree uh, in Ukraine, where it's very difficult to hide large forces in particular. Uh, because of the proliferation of drones and then the drones also have attack capabilities but on a major scale if you were in say the indo-pacific you can see everything you can target everything and in many cases, you can hit and kill everything, although obviously defenses uh, still are, are of enormous importance. So the evolution of this has been quite profound uh, over the course of the period since 1945, with, of course, a course, of very considerable development happening right at the end of the war, uh, which, of course, was the advent of nuclear weapons, below which ever since, really, all wars have been carried out. Uh, that is, in a sense, put a threshold on the top of this, so far deterring those that have nuclear weapons from using them, but not deterring uh, nuclear-capable powers from using conventional forces uh, underneath the nuclear threshold.
0: Okay. Other than the wars now underway, and as we talk, we have uh, the Russia-Ukraine war and the Israel-Hamas war, but other than those two wars, uh, what potential prospect of war uh, has you most worried uh, at the moment?
1: I think it is in the Indo Pacific theater. Uh, this is one that has to be deterred. Uh, deterrence is, of course, David, a function of two elements. It's the potential adversary's assessment of capabilities on the one hand and your willingness to employ those capabilities on the other. Uh, We have to be sure that there is no doubt about any of that, and there are numerous initiatives being taken in the Indo-Pacific theater to transform our capabilities, to disperse them, to harden them, to defend them, all of this. Uh, And indeed, I think there's a reason why President Biden has on four occasions said that we would come to the rescue of Taiwan. While, of course, his national security advisor then hastens to add that there is no change to our policy of strategic ambiguity, but it is to ensure that there's no doubt, again, about the U.S. willingness to employ forces uh, in certain circumstances.
0: Uh, Lord Roberts, any comment on this? Over the
2: 140 or so wars since the Second World War, none of them have been directly between the superpowers, and that uh, clearly, as David says, has got to be much more worrying than any other kind of conflict.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about uh, one war that's going on right now that began after you wrote this book, and that's uh, the war between Israel and Hamas. What led to Israel's being caught off guard, and what enabled Hamas to be so well-prepared and organized compared to expectations from outsiders about their capabilities?
1: Well, what happened in this case, David, is that Hamas increased their operational security very dramatically. Uh, They seem to have understood what sources and methods uh, Israel Shin Bet, their internal security uh, intelligence service in particular uses, because this is both Gaza and the West Bank are the focus of Shin Bet more than they are of of Mossad. But also aware of what the other intelligence services uh, in Israel use to identify various developments that would be of concern so indicators and warnings as the term is and so this would also include unit 8200 their version of our national security agency and then their defense intelligence uh, as well the equivalent uh, of ours that we have in the us Uh, and then they use this greater operational security to be able to actually carry out planning Uh, training, rehearsing, organizing and so forth without betraying their plans uh, to Israel and without Israel sensing that this was going on. There was also a disinformation effort that took place uh, where Israel again put into these networks, into these various uh, sources and methods, uh, information that seemed to indicate that the Hamas leader was seeking to provide a better life for the Palestinian people was happy to have the additional work visas. In fact, Hamas sat on the sidelines when some other developments might have otherwise in the past prompted them to take some action to show sympathy for something going on in the West Bank or elsewhere. Uh, So all of these, and then of course they attacked uh, on the Shabbat Not just a Shabbat, but a religious observation period during which there were a number of military and other security force elements that were on leave. And there were large numbers of individuals down in the southern part of Israel in that area where the attack took place for a huge music festival. And then they blinded uh, the Israeli surveillance systems when they actually carried out what was quite a sophisticated air, land and sea uh, operation. And they knew exactly where they were going. They had maps. They understood in one of the cases uh, to immediately go to the police station uh, and disable the servers and switches. Uh, They took out the relays, essentially the cell phone towers, if you will, that relayed the video surveillance back to the command post where it was watched. They managed to disable the automatic machine guns, all of this, and then plow bulldozers right through the fence. In fact, they'd been doing demonstrations near the fence line for quite some time to sort of lull the Israelis, uh, again, into uh, less alert status than they might otherwise have been. And I think the uh, Israelis also were distracted a bit by developments in the West Bank. There's been more violence there between Palestinians and settlers in recent months. And of course, just the sheer domestic turmoil, uh, the political turmoil posed threats that would have been of the type that would have required attention from Shin Bet uh, as well. Uh, So you put all of that together and then very skillful execution of what obviously was unspeakable, barbaric, horrific, Uh, attacks and even videoing some of the most horrible aspects of them. But nonetheless, uh, they seem to have really understood how the Israeli intelligence uh, agencies collected information, what their sources and methods were. They countered that, fed disinformation uh, into them, uh, and then carried out a very, very diabolically clever, but obviously brutally barbaric attack. And
2: they also played to their strength, of course, using the tunnels, these uh, these vast um, miles, hundreds of miles of tunnels that they had, both essentially using analog communications, telephone wires, essentially, and never used the uh, the various communication systems that they knew that the Israelis could uh, listen into. Messages were, were passed by hand during in these tunnels. They also moved up their forces in the tunnels as well. So they did play to their strengths.
0: Uh, all wars end. Uh, so how do you see this war eventually ending? Uh, do you see a two-state Palestinian solution coming into being? Or do you think this warfare could go on for another six months this way before uh, the, the arms are put down? What do you predict today? Uh, obviously, we we can't predict perfectly, but what do each of you think will happen in terms of ending this war?
1: I think, uh, David, that if the mission is, as it has been announced, to destroy Hamas which is essentially an extremist army. Uh, It's tens of thousands of Islamic state-like terrorists. Uh, And I think that analogy, while imperfect, because there's an element of Palestinian nationalism here undeniably, nonetheless, this is an extremist force that cannot be reconciled. So they literally have to be captured or killed. Uh, And there's also uh, the mission to dismantle the political wing of Hamas, essentially to take apart and disable essentially the government of the territory uh, of the gaza strip and to do that requires essentially clearing every building floor room cellar tunnel and then holding them so you have to clear and hold and then move on to the next but you have to retain control of the areas that you have cleared or the enemy will infiltrate into them and you'll be fighting in 360 degrees this is a very laborious Very challenging, and it's particularly challenging against an enemy who knows the area as well as the back of his hand, where you have 300 miles of tunnels uh, underneath it, as Andrew noted, and and an ability to use that, where they put headquarters and other facilities and weapons storage underneath hospitals, refugee camps, other civilian infrastructure, store weapons and mosques, uh, where they use civilians as uh, human shields, But as you realize the magnitude of this task, And recognize that there's one other very pernicious element here, which is that some of these individuals will be willing to blow themselves up to take the Israelis with them. And that's a particularly challenging threat because it means that Israeli soldiers have to keep every civilian uh, at more than arm's length, especially if they have bulky clothing on. Uh, And if they don't obey the orders or the direction, uh, then they may have to take lethal action. And the same against automobiles, because car bombs are another threat, suicide So, Andrew and I think that this is the most challenging context when it comes to urban warfare that we have seen since 1945 noting that we cleared many large cities during the surge in Iraq, uh, Ramadi, Fallujah again for the final time, parts of Baghdad, Sadr City, Bakuba, Mosul, Basra, and so on. Nothing as challenging as this will be. So it's going to take a lengthy time. How long obviously depends on uh, how fierce the resistance is by Hamas, whether some of them can get away. But the real challenge here, David, is actually not the destruction of Hamas and the dismantling of the political wing. It's the day after. It's the post-conflict plan. And so far, this has been so challenging to, to conceive of that they haven't yet been able to determine how it will be done. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, of course, noted that it's possible that Israel might, for a temporary basis, have to secure Gaza. Because keep in mind that this is not just about administering humanitarian assistance, restoration of basic services, reconstruction of very, very heavily damaged infrastructure right now, particularly in, in northern part of Gaza. But I suspect they have to go to the south because many of the the Hamas fighters will have in civilian clothes gone to the south of course they don't wear uniforms and you know put up identifying features over their uh, headquarters and so forth but then the task is going to be to keep Hamas from being able to reconstitute itself that's the real challenge here Ideally, I'd like to hear a vision for the Palestinians, not just in Gaza, by the way, after Hamas is gone and how much better life will be and that Israel will ensure that that's the case together with other uh, interested parties that have concern for the Palestinians. I think it would be well, well advised to do so for the West Bank, where there is increasing violence right now. And as you alluded, there's really no other alternative than a two-state solution. Anything other than that uh, has very, very significant uh, shortcomings and and flaws. But again, who is it that can do this? There's no competent, capable Palestinian uh, entity waiting over in the West Bank to deploy to Gaza Uh, to establish itself. Uh, They certainly don't want to ride in on the backs of Israeli tanks. And even beyond that, if you get a Palestinian or other Arab entity that could oversee the restoration of basic services in particular, who is going to keep an eye on the remnants of Hamas, given the enormous sacrifice and damage and loss of life, Israeli soldiers and innocent civilians in Gaza as well, to keep Hamas from reconstituting and coming back and doing all of this again. That's the real challenge.
0: Okay. Uh, Lord Roberts, any comment on this? I fully agree with all of that, of course. Uh, But for there to be peace, you
2: need to have uh, both sides want to end the war. And at the moment, neither side does. And if you have a ceasefire imposed by the outside world, that's only going to put the conflict on ice, frankly. It's not going to uh, give Israel the chance to do the thing it needs to do, which is to extirpate um, Hamas as a military force. You're not going to extirpate it as a political force because outside Gaza, it's always going to exist. But what Israel needs to do is to make sure that it's not going to be in a military position to do the same thing again as it did on the 7th of October anytime soon.
1: The challenge here, David, is that Israel, I think correctly, has assessed that just like the Islamic State, Hamas is irreconcilable. Um, As you will recall, David, during the surge in Iraq, we actually determined that we could reconcile with large numbers of the rank and file, the junior low level insurgents, some of the Shia militia supported by Iran low level. Uh, but then that the leaders were irreconcilable, they had to be captured or killed. In this case, if you have an Islamic state-like entity, a true extremist organization through and through, uh, Israel has recognized that they cannot reconcile with Hamas. There is no peace deal to be had with Hamas at this point in time, similar to even the somewhat tacit agreements that seem to obtain at various points in the past after some strikes and rockets and missiles and drones and so forth. Israel would retaliate, would reduce the capabilities and capacities of Hamas. And then there would be a period of a few years of much reduced activity. Uh, In this case, they've decided they have to destroy Hamas uh, in toto. So, again, capturing or killing, clearing and holding every area that is within uh, the territory, uh, and then ensuring that there is sufficient intelligence and force to make sure that Hamas cannot reconstitute itself. That's a very, very tall order. And, of course, they need to be concerned about hearts and minds as they are carrying out this campaign. We used to have a sign on the wall of every op center that I was privileged to to lead of any organization and it asked, will this operation take more bad guys off the street than it creates by its conduct? If the answer to that is no, in other words, it'll create more bad guys, then you have to figure out how do you change that answer? What steps can you take to mitigate that particular outcome or perhaps not do it uh, if you can't really get to the right answer? Um, Because when this is all said and done, when Hamas is gone, Israel will need at least not to have the the civilians fighting them as they're trying to restore uh, basic services and distribute humanitarian assistance, carry out reconstruction and so forth to make Gaza livable again, something that is increasingly not the case uh, in the areas where the hardest of fighting has been going on in North Gaza. So enormous number of challenges here. And again this is why we believe this is the toughest operation of its type since 1945.
0: Well let's switch to an easier one then. Russia Ukraine um how is that going to be resolved in in the near future if at all in your view Lord Roberts?
2: Once again um know you need both sides to want to make a peace and um, neither side wants to now. Putin thinks that he can uh, sustain the uh, necessary levels of future losses. He's got three times the more than three times the economy. He's got three times the population and he believes that by attrition especially with the rest of the world now looking at uh, the Middle East um, he might be able to uh, just through um, uh, sheer hanging on and then in the the new year fighting back, uh, continue this war to the point that the Ukrainians can't sustain it any longer. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians, recognising they've lost 18 to 19% of their territory, are indeed fighting on. And so until um, at least one side and preferably two want to make peace, uh, you're not going to get it.
1: When Andrew and I were there about five months ago, David, uh, and then when I was back about five or six weeks ago, the Ukrainians are absolutely determined still to liberate their territory. And there's no discussion uh, of their willingness to engage in negotiations. Uh, I tend to think this is about as right versus wrong as it gets in the world. Uh, However, imperfect a democracy Uh, Ukraine is. uh, This brutal and unprovoked invasion by Russia led by a man who has enormous historical grievances, revisionist history, revanchist uh, objectives, and so forth denies Ukraine's right to exist. This just cannot be allowed to succeed. Uh, If it does, he'll continue. He'll go after Moldova. He'll go after Lithuania, which he mentioned over a dozen times in that uh, lengthy diatribe that he made back in 2021. So, again, this is a case where I think we should be doing everything we can to enable Ukraine on the battlefield, together with our European and other Western partners. The Europeans have stepped up to the plate in this case. They've actually now pledged more even in security assistance than we have, having already provided much more in the way of economic, financial, and humanitarian assistance uh, to convince Putin on the battlefield and then also with ever tighter sanctions uh, and uh, export controls, personal, financial, and economic restrictions, uh, that this war is not sustainable either on the battlefield or on the Russian home front. Uh, So all of that needs to be continued. Uh, I'm hopeful that our Congress and, and the executive branch can get together to provide a substantial assistance in the future to enable Ukraine to achieve what it is set out to achieve. It's very much in our interest. This is not about charity. This is about our national security and that of our NATO allies. And it's also, frankly, about the message that it sends elsewhere in the world. Andrew and I believe another one of the conclusions that comes out of the book is that everything is related. If there's a red line that turns out not to be a red line in one place of the world, it actually echoes and there are reverberations uh, in other parts of the world. It undermines deterrence. Frankly, the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan and the way it was conducted very likely was one of the factors that led Putin to think that he could invade Ukraine and that the U.S. and Western response wouldn't be anywhere near as substantial as it actually has been. Again, you have to be very conscious that what you do in one location that your response after Crimea and the Russian support for separatists in the Donbass of Ukraine, which was fairly tepid, uh, then leads him some years later to believe that he can get away with further aggression. And again, if we're trying to ensure that deterrence is solid in the Indo Pacific, we need to ensure that there's no question about not just our capabilities, but also our willingness to employ them.
0: Let's talk about Afghanistan for a moment. You mentioned it. Um, why did we go into Afghanistan after 9 11? with relatively modest forces. Uh, The Powell Doctrine used in the Kuwait War said in effect, take maximum amount of military weaponry and troops into a a war situation. It seemed to me from afar that in Afghanistan, when we were trying to capture Osama bin Laden, we decided to use the opposite of the Powell Doctrine. Why did we do that? And had we put more resources into Afghanistan at the beginning, would we avoided a 10 year, 15 year war?
1: Well, I think that there was a determination at policymaking levels in the Pentagon, uh, that the military tends to overdo it, that we always want more than is actually necessary, and that also you should never plant a flag. Once you get a flag in a place like Bosnia, it never seems to come out, in other words, a division headquarters, and that the demands just seem to continue. And so the decision was made Uh, When the Taliban refused to turn over the architects, uh, Osama bin Laden and the extremists who planned the 9-11 attacks in a sanctuary in Taliban-controlled area of Afghanistan and did the initial training of the attackers there, the determination was to go in. In some respects, it was a brilliant campaign, a handful of special forces on horseback and CIA officers with footlockers of money who enabled warlords and their fighters, which forced the Taliban to mass repeatedly. And then we clobbered them with our air power and essentially shattered the Taliban. But you're right that then when it came to conduct a major operation against a quite dug-in uh, enemy in the area, very rugged mountain cave-infested area of Tora Bora uh, in eastern Afghanistan, uh, not only did we not have sufficient forces, we also didn't have a sufficient organizational architecture. There was no unity of command or even unity of effort, frankly. Different elements of special forces wouldn't work for the conventional forces. The CIA had its own uh, surrogate forces. And the coordination of all of that proved to be inadequate. There's a great book on that, in fact, called Not a Good Day to Die that is quite critical of the lack of the organizational architecture. And then you're right, David, that we very quickly changed focus to Iraq. And that became the top priority. That was the main effort from well before the actual invasion of Iraq in March of 2003. Uh, in fact, we observe in the book that we didn't even get the inputs right in Afghanistan after, again, a brilliant initial campaign. And by inputs, we're talking about the right overarching strategy, which had to be. There is no no alternative to a comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaign, almost the right level of forces, military forces. Uh, The right level of diplomats, spies, development workers, rule of law experts, all these other areas of expertise and capability that were required, the right preparation of our forces, the right leaders, all of this really did not come together until nine years after the initial invasion. It came together in late 2010, when we were able to refocus on Afghanistan at the conclusion of the surge, which of course drove violence down by so much in Iraq, by nearly 90%, that we could have an orderly withdrawal of our forces and an orderly transition of tasks to the Iraqi security force. And that worked very well for three and a half years, during which, we were able to refocus on Afghanistan uh, and just begin to provide the right level of resources. But even when we got the inputs right uh, in late 2010, we only kept them right for about six or seven months before beginning a drawdown that we had announced in a speech that announced the buildup of forces. Uh, and if you're in a contest of will with an enemy, probably not advisable to announce that you intend to draw down, even if perhaps you do. Uh, So again, there were a number of deficiencies in Afghanistan. I think it's actually accurate to say that there were four administrations. We didn't even have strategic consistency within any of the administrations, much less from one administration to the other.
0: So with respect to Iraq, uh, many Americans wonder, and people all over the world wonder, how did our intelligence forces so misread the uh, presence of or so-called weapons of mass destruction in in Iraq, we thought that they had them, turned out they didn't. How did we misread it? And why did Saddam Hussein pretend that he had them when he could have avoided all the problems by just showing that he didn't have them?
1: That second question is particularly interesting because his own generals thought that he had weapons of mass destruction, right? I talked to a number of them after I was a two-star general during the invasion of Iraq, commander of the 101st Airborne Division. And we then detained or took the surrender of a number of these individuals and talked to some of them. And they were all convinced that he had them. And I think he tried to perpetuate that myth. You know, he did have the weapons of mass destruction in the past. He obviously used them on the Kurds. They were used again uh, in the Iran-Iraq war. We actually found, I should note, during the surge, many years after the invasion, uh, a bunker that had old chemical weapons in it. They, not many were usable. Some were actually leaking. Ultimately, what we did was just cocoon it with cement and not, not even try to uh, destroy or move those. So again, they had existed. There's no question about that. But he had actually gotten rid of them under pressure after the uh, liberation of Kuwait in Operation Desert Storm, the first Gulf War. Uh, But he wanted people to believe that he still had them just in a sense for a fear factor. He wanted his external adversaries to think it. He wanted the Kurds to think it. And he wanted his own internal uh, leaders to think it just so that perhaps someone would not test him in a way uh, that might lead to the use of those. But clearly he had gotten rid of them, uh, and that was a massive intelligence failure. There was a bit of an inclination, of course, toward intelligence that would justify an invasion that did take place. But I should note, David, that I was the executive officer for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs under the previous administration, under the Clinton administration, and it was an article of faith then that he actually had, again, weapons of mass destruction and the delivery means uh, to employ them.
2: And also, I think it's worth pointing out that it would be very, very unusual in history. In fact, I can't think of any other precedent for a dictator to get rid of his own weapons, especially such uh, vicious and and powerful weapons as as WMD.
0: Let's talk about Vietnam. Uh, I was uh, a college student during the Vietnam era, and I remember the country was bitterly divided uh, between those who thought we had to end communism in the Southeast Asia, or it would spread throughout Asia, and uh, and those who basically thought that the war was a terrible mistake. Uh, 58,000 Americans uh, at a minimum were killed. Uh, in hindsight, now in 2023, as we look at it, is there any way to defend what happened in Vietnam? Can we today say that that was a good war to fight for the United States, or was this a colossal failure?
1: I think a colossal failure actually would be an overstatement. Uh, There's a bit of a counterfactual, but of course, communism did not spread in the way that it was feared that it would spread. So the domino theory, there seemed to be some basis for that. Uh, Again, there was a concern. Of course, the Communists did prevail over the French, who had a seriously bad big idea, by the way, which was when they were frustrated that they couldn't bring the communists to battle, that they were fighting as guerrillas, they created this enormous base at a place called Dien Bien Phu. And they did, in fact, attract the communists to battle so much so that the communists defeated them they had to surrender and of course then had to leave Indochina as it was called then and North and South Vietnam were partitioned but there was a fear in the Eisenhower administration uh, initially that continued into the Kennedy administration uh, that the dominoes would continue to fall in Southeast Asia uh, if there was not a push back and support of those countries that were fighting against communism Uh, And so that's what led us to support the South Vietnamese. Uh, The challenge here, David, is that we didn't get the big ideas right until literally 1968. We started in the wake of the uh, French withdrawal in mid 1950s, 1955, modest security assistance programs. uh, But we didn't understand the nature of the conflict for many, many years. Uh, we sought to act on the basis of the lessons of Korea, which was a conventional war, by and large. Uh, and where we learned that, you know, you have to be wary of someone attacking you from the north across some kind of demilitarized zone. And so when the South Vietnamese in the mid 1950s said, we have a problem with guerrillas and essentially insurgents that would become called the Viet Cong, communist guerrillas within South Vietnam. In our villages and hamlets, we said, well, but you, what you really need to be worried about is a North Vietnamese invasion of major units. And so what we're going to do is help you develop divisions, big military organizations, 10, 15,000 each on the model of our divisions, of course. And yet they were not what South Vietnam really needed. And we never really quite understood the nature fully, nor the strategy, therefore, that was needed to combat that until General Abrams took over in 1968 from General Westmoreland, who had turned the war into a very big war, big units, big operations, uh, and thought that we could win a war of attrition uh, with the guerrillas in the South, and then also uh, over time, the North Vietnamese forces. The situation was so challenging that we could have gotten everything right, of course, and still not one. Again, our host nation partners were not particularly connected with the people, the average peasant, again, who was Buddhist and in the rice paddies. And here you had the leaders who would shop in France and spoke French and were Catholic and quite, if you will, uh, elite. Uh, And there were challenges with corruption and a variety of other shortcomings. So again, the difficulties of this with sanctuaries in the neighboring countries, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, Uh, And frankly, an enemy who didn't view casualties in the same way that we did. Uh, And yet we thought that if we just killed enough of them uh, and had an exchange ratio that was, you know, five, ten to 1 or more, uh, that over time, that would be enough to persuade them that they should not continue the war. Uh, And that just did not work. Uh, There were alternatives if we had had, again, a civil military counterinsurgency campaign as General Abrams sought to establish. Uh, and did with some degree of success in 1968. But by then, as you noted, the domestic public support had eroded so substantially, particularly in the wake of the Tet Offensive earlier in that year, uh, that it was no longer a sustainable war. And the difference between people have said, for example, that Afghanistan was the 21st century Vietnam. I just do not accept that at all. We had alternatives in Afghanistan that were sustainable. 3,500 troops without losing a soldier in 18 months, the final 18 months until that tragic suicide bombing killed 13 soldiers uh, and Marines at the airfield during the withdrawal. 3,500 troops is sustainable. 25 billion out of a defense budget of 800, 850 billion was sustainable. Vietnam, on the other hand, was not sustainable. The cost of blood and treasure over time just was no longer sustainable.
2: I think um, it's it's worth noting that Lee Kuan Yew the uh, one of the great statesmen of the 20th century from Southeast Asia did say that had it not been for the United States fighting the Vietnam War then Thailand then Malaysia and ultimately his country Singapore would have been uh, uh would have fallen to communism.
0: Now, Lord Roberts, you're a historian. Uh, His history suggests what some of the acolytes of President Kennedy would like people to believe, which is had he lived and been reelected, he would have pulled out of Vietnam in 1964, avoiding the Vietnam War tragedies and enormous loss of power. Is there any evidence of that? None
2: whatsoever. No. In fact, there's plenty of evidence that uh, he was going to go in in just the same way that LBJ did. Um, you have to be a true believer in Camelot to uh, think that he had some, uh, some special capacity for looking into the future.
0: So in the remaining couple minutes we have, I'll just ask you one or two remaining questions that I've had on my mind. One is, how is artificial intelligence going to affect warfare in the future? Is it going to make it Easier to fight wars or harder to fight wars because both sides have artificial intelligence. Do you have any views on that, either of you?
1: We do. Um, It's going to change the nature of warfare in a number of different ways because it's going to enable this shift from a small number of large platforms that are very heavily manned, incredibly capable, unbelievably expensive, but increasingly vulnerable to a massive number of smaller unmanned systems that will increasingly not be remotely piloted, but piloted by software, where again, the human who designs the algorithm will be the human on the loop. And AI will play a very important role in every aspect of this. AI will transform every aspect of warfare Uh, from how you route planes, to how often you conduct maintenance, to learning about the enemy's capabilities, to making these machines, these unmanned systems, ever smarter, uh, ever more efficient, and ever more capable. But of course, there's something about this that obviously poses some ethical challenges if you take the human out of the loop to a degree, and it obviously makes warfare something that will be between machines increasingly. And there are attendant challenges with that, needless to say.
2: Yeah, we we very much uh, wanted the last of our chapters, Chapter 10, which we call the future of war, to to look into the future. And so we cover cyber and space and sensors, AI, robotics uh, and uh, drones, of course, and disinformation, which is a tremendously important aspect of uh, future wars, we think.
0: So a final question. Should my children and grandchildren worry more about, in the future the threat to the United States from China, Russia, Iran, or some other country?
1: I think, David, what they have to worry about is that we face the greatest number of threats and challenges, and the greatest complexity of threats and challenges. So if you think of the United States as the guy in the circus who has to keep a lot of plates spinning, some of these much bigger than others, I mean, the China plate is bigger than all the others put together in the tent. And of course, we have others that help us keep the plate spinning, allies and partners uniquely that our potential adversaries and real adversaries don't have. But it's the combination of all of this that is the real challenge. I believe that U.S. leadership in the world is crucial, uh, that there is no substitute for it. Uh, As we saw in Afghanistan, if we decide not to continue something, even if all the others want to, they cannot without us. So the challenge that future generations need to grapple with is that of continuing the U.S. role in the world, which is something we undertake because it's in our national interest to do so. It's in our national security interest. It's in our interest in in terms of maintaining prosperity for ourselves, our citizens, and those of our allied and partner countries. So I think that's the real issue.
2: The other point, uh, I think, is that um, it might not be China, Russia... Iran individually. It might well be together, as David was saying. You didn't mention North Korea, which uh, is obviously developing delivery systems for its nuclear weapons. If you live on the west coast of um, the United States, I'd I'd have that as a uh, a serious worry as well in the future, especially if you're talking about your grandchildren's time. But there's also been historically the threat from the clear blue sky, from the surprise attack that you don't expect from any particular moment. Look at Hamas, but there's one been in every single decade from uh, the 40s when you had Pearl Harbour, the 50s when you had Korea, the 60s when you had the Six-Day War, the 70s when you had Yom Kippur, the 80s when you had the Falklands. And you also, of course, had uh, 9-11. Every decade seems to throw up a surprise attack. And that's something I think your grandchildren are also sadly going to have to uh, worry about.
0: I would say uh, we didn't mention Uh, the famous cartoon that somebody says, I've seen the enemy and it is us. So you have to wonder, in my view, whether the biggest problem in the future is our inability of our own government to get its act together from time to time. But that's a separate subject for another book. So let me just say, I've been in discussion today with General David Petraeus and Lord Andrew Roberts on their book, Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Thank you both for a very interesting and stimulating conversation.
1: Thank you. Thank you, David. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.